Good afternoon, brethren. I was hesitating. I thought maybe Mr. Davis would provide special music, but uh, he declined to sing, I guess. Maybe we can get Mrs. Davis up there. She can sing, and we need to hear from her, and we need to hear again from Deborah, and uh, we might even get Mr. Aparty to sing for us in French. I don't know how that will work. <clears throat> anyway, I'm not going to sing. I know that. That's for sure. Prophecy is certainly moving ahead, brethren. I think you know that with the raging fires in California, perhaps the worst fires ever in the state of California, and over $2 billion in damage, and uh, a lot of people having their homes uh, burned down, their lives disrupted, all that kind of thing, and certainly the uh, draining of America's military and financial resources in Iraq and other parts of the Middle East. And a lot of you don't read the, sp the fine print. I know that. You don't have time to read, let's say, the, all the paper and the Wall Street Journal and get the special reports that some of us get. Mr. Davis gets the uh, Stratfor's Intelligence Digest. He gives me that, and then I get other reports, and uh, I think he does too. We share those around, and they're telling about the drain on the American resources. A lot of our equipment and materiel is simply being used up. If we did have to get into it with North Korea or anybody else, we really would be in bad shape. And also our economic situation is frankly precarious. They're right now really gunning and have been gunning at least until recently the money supply and they have the tax cut and they're having a lot more government spending. And it looks like as we have prayed, and I think I ask you to pray about that, I have prayed quite a number of times that God would give us one more wave of prosperity for the sake of the work, if that's his will. And it does look like that is happening. And as you know, the GDP, the gross national product, has gone on up 7.2% uh, in the last quarter, and that's the biggest increase in a long time, indicating that more jobs are coming and more prosperity is coming in the near future. But the national debt is skyrocketing because they've printed so much money and they're spending so much money on all these other things. So God is beginning to move, and that's going to show up in due time, believe me. So events will start speeding up. The Pope is on his final legs, as you know, and lots of other things are happening with this world court and the United States of Europe. The man who wrote this book, Principalities and Powers of Europe, had a major article in Britain's Spectator magazine, which was sent by one of our members, very powerful article showing how Britain and the democracy and the monarchy... Queen Elizabeth and the monarchy in Britain is in terrible trouble right now because of this Catholic-led United States of Europe. It's very, very significant, the things he points out there. So events are certainly taking place behind the scenes and sometimes right on the front page if you read the front page carefully of your, of your newspaper. Brethren, as these things take place, you and I need to think big and build big faith. We need, this is my title, this is my topic today. You and I need to think big and to build big faith. The great God is going to do a very, very powerful and very significant work on this earth somewhere by somebody. And he will raise up rocks to do it if he has to. But he doesn't have to. And he never does that unless he uh, just doesn't have anyone that's willing. We are willing and we want to, most of our ministers, most of our brethren do have fire in their belly or they would not be with us. And God knows that. So we can expect that this work will increase tremendously in power before the end. 
I'm aware of the fact that it won't suddenly leap ahead necessarily in the next year or two, although I think that may begin. I think we're in a holding pattern. I think we're in a turning point. We're getting settled. We're getting ready for something very, very big here in Charlotte. And I feel God is going to begin to bless that, and certainly even in the next year or two. But the huge growth will come perhaps the last two or three years of the work just before the most awful trouble and human history begins to descend upon America and the British descended peoples around the earth called the Great Tribulation. And God will cause someone to give a powerful witness before that time, believe me, because God is love and God is not going to give people, uh, let these things happen without that kind of witness. Uh, the world needs what we have to give. We have to get out to the world, brethren, all of us, as you talk to your friends, as you pray about it, as we write, as we preach, as we teach. The world has got to come to know that there is a real God. An awful lot of the world, I mean, even the professing Christian world, does not believe in a real God. Most of you realize that if you're older. But they think there's sort of a God, a sort of a force, or someone somehow way off. But he's way off, believe me. You young people here, you young people around the world who hear this later, most of your friends in the world, you'll find out if you talk to them in detail, God is very unreal to them. As I grew up with my 25 friends, some were Presbyterian, some were Baptist, some belonged to the community church, other churches, many of us were in the Methodist church, God was very unreal to all those guys. And Jimmy Porter and Jimmy Mallet and Jack Fernoy and, and uh, you know, Ronnie Kennel and Ducky McPherson, all of them, I remember them. We had long talks. And God was very unreal to all of them. They didn't know God, and he was very unreal to them and many, many other fellows that I worked with and lived with and the working men that I knew at Zeidler Concrete Pipe Plant up in the uh, construction crew up in the uh, uh, Anderson Ranch Dam in Idaho and in the logging fields up in uh, Oregon. Most of them took God's name in vain. They cursed. They used filthy sex words continually, pouring out of their mouth like a torrent. And God was obviously very unreal to most of those people. And some of them did belong to churches, by the way, but obviously God was not a real God to them. So we've got to help the world know there is a very real God. And secondly, we've got to help them realize, and I'm just telling you this, to pray about, and you young people, a lot of you need to prove it to yourself because a lot of you have grown up in the church or been around the church, but God is not real to you. And this word, the Bible, is not really inspired in your minds the way it ought to be. And frankly, this book is God-breathed, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired of God. That is, literally, in the Greek language, God breathed. It comes right out from God. And if people would prove those two things alone, a real God, and this book is God breathed, and then if they could catch on to the third concept, that true Christianity ought to be based, and is in reality, in a true Christianity, based on the genuine teachings and practices of Jesus Christ himself, and the original apostles. They could just get those three things straight. A real God, an absolutely inspired Bible, and true Christianity is literally what Christ taught. That shouldn't seem strange. That seems like ABC, doesn't it? And it is. But most of the so-called Christianity doesn't get that at all. And you find these big processions, if you saw it in the religion section or the, what do they call it, section of the paper today, Carolina Living. And there's this uh, young uh, bishop being ordained over here in the Catholic Church. He's about 
46 or 48 years old, and these, these two older men, they all look like kind of me. They're all slender and have glasses, and he's, but they're wearing these funny-looking hats. And you look back at the uh, records and the archaeological evidence back in ancient Babylon and Egypt, and they had their funny-looking hats back then, too. And it's just as Alexander Hislop points out in the book, to The Two Babylons, it's just a continuation of the ancient Babylon. And they're chanting chants, and they're going through responsive this and all that. And they seem very important as they go along in their long Mother Hubbard gowns and their funny-looking hats. That kind of stuff is not Christianity. That has no relationship whatsoever to the Christianity of Christ and the apostles. And most of Protestantism doesn't either. They teach all these different ideas, but they don't really teach at all what Jesus taught and what the original apostles taught, or at least they teach very little of that. They say we're to love one another. That's good. But how do we love one another? The way God said or the way they say? They don't get it. God has not opened their minds yet. As Jesus said in John 6:44, no one can come to me. They cannot unless the Spirit of the Father draw him. And God has not drawn most people to that understanding. But this world needs what we have to give because these things in prophecy are speeding up and the end of this society is coming. At the same time, we would read about this horrifying religious confusion. We also, of course, read about the increasing emphasis on homosexuality. And there is a picture today in the paper there, this uh, great big uh, woman uh, preacher over here, and she has a church devoted to that, accepting everybody, and they're all, everybody just as good as anybody else because we want to have the love of God. Well, of course, if the Bible reflects the love of God, uh, the Bible tells you that homosexuality is a sin. Sexuality is a perversion of everything God designed. And one of the greatest lies of Satan the devil, and it is a satanic lie, is that homosexuals are born that way. And I tell you in the name of Christ, they are not born that way. Lots and lots of scientists know that, say that. It's just a few scientists who try to say that, but we know they're not right because the Bible says God will not tempt anyone beyond his ability. You're not born to be a homosexual. You're not born to be a child molester. You're not born to be a drunkard. You're not born to be a drug addict. You're not born to be anything like that. You might have a tendency toward those things, and you have to fight that tendency, yes. But with the Spirit of God, you can overcome any of that. And don't let anyone try to mess your mind up with other ideas, because it's directly contrary to the Word of God. God says back here in Amos, the third chapter, if you like to turn with me there. I'm going to get a little bit of this tea here before I get going. Amos, brethren, chapter 3 in your Bible. Amos, chapter 3, and let's begin reading here. And again, all Scripture is inspired of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. His basic approach will always be the same in those things. Amos 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in the city, remember a trumpet was often an alarm of war, Trouble is coming. Will not the people be afraid if there's calamity in a city? Will not the eternal have done it? Remember, the capital L-O-R-D means the ever-living one, the, the eternal. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
God will do nothing. God will not intervene in a city in a major way or a nation unless, of course, he helps his people understand. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The eternal God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? If God reveals these things to us, we'd better prophesy. We'd better get out there with God's message and let people know what's ahead for them. That's our opportunity to stand just before the bridge that's blown out and say, Stop! Stop! You're going to get killed. You'll fall down in a ravine of the rushing river if you keep going. And we've got to do that. God has commissioned us to do that. He wants us to do that. So God is going to intervene and guide His true servants wherever they are to understand what's going on. And most people on earth don't understand. Most ministers don't even preach about prophecy. They don't understand it. They don't talk about it. And the ones who do talk about it talk in a very, very general way. Billy Graham just a few weeks ago said in his column, Christ might come tonight. You know, he said that. And on the other hand, he said, he may not come for yet 1,000 more years. That's in his column in writing. I'll be quoting that in one of my articles. I heard him say that in person. Mr. Party and I think both did, didn't we, up in Santa Barbara. He and I drove together up to Santa Barbara to hear Billy Graham preach in person back in 1949. I remember that statement. He and I talked about it later in the car. Billy's still saying that. Christ may not come for 1,000 more years. And yet he said Christ may come tonight. Well, of course, that's ridiculous too. There's no way Christ is going to come tonight. Because Christ could come tonight, yes, but he says heaven and earth will depart, but my words will not depart, whatever. He's going to go according to his word. He's inspired that there are going to be a whole number of things happen before he comes, and those things have not yet happened. So he will not come tonight or tomorrow night or the next night. Those things will happen first, but he's certainly not going to wait a thousand years because a lot of these things are just in the preparatory stage. And Christ will, no doubt, be on this earth within the next 15 to 25 years or less. Hopefully less than the 15, but we don't know that. And we've got to watch and pray. We must not set exact dates. Turn to Matthew 24 now, Jesus Christ's prophecy here. Matthew 24 and beginning in verse 7. He talked about false prophets first. And then he said... Nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom, a different Greek word, basileia, shall rise up against kingdom, world war, which began in 1914. And there will be famines, and there are going to be a massive lack of food in various nations of this earth, including right here. And in Britain and Australia and Canada, we've been the breadbasket of the world. Not Britain, but Canada, Australia, and us. Famines. Pestilences, that means disease epidemics in modern languages, they will occur. And earthquakes, yes, earthquakes are going to get more frequent and more powerful, which they already are. But again, they're going to strike not just off in some northern Japanese island or off in some Mongolian area or some province of China out in the mountains where they've been more recent. They're going to strike right here. They're going to strike Los Angeles and San Francisco, probably more that state because that state has produced more vile uh, pornography and filth than perhaps any other single place on the earth. Remember this huge earthquake that struck back there several years ago. The center was right in Northridge, right in Northridge. And many of the Christian fundamentalist groups rightly pointed out 
they don't have all the truth, but they rightly pointed out that that area was the center of pornography for Southern California. More of the porno films and filth was produced right there. God is aware of that, and he's going to deal with that area, and he's going to deal with all of us all over the world. And the British and American peoples are not going to escape. Earthquakes. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That's not the end. Then they will deliver you. And you've heard me mention this, but please be aware, brethren, he's talking here not nationally, but about his servants. That's us today. The apostles are dead. Mr. Armstrong is dead. That means me and you. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations, all nations, for my name's sake. Now, other scriptures tell us in Revelation 3, talking about the Philadelphia church, and the Revelation 12, talking about the true church of God, which keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ, that those who are really watching and praying and obeying God, which most professing Christians don't do, they say the commandments are not necessary, or they do away with the fourth commandment. They don't keep the Sabbath or even try to. They have all kinds of miserable excuses why they can't, and they do away with God's holy days and substitute the pagan days of Christmas and Easter and so on. But if you're watching and praying, most of you would be taken to a place of safety. But millions of others, or at least thousands of others, I should say, of Christians, would not be. And certainly, he says, these things are going to happen. And you will be hated by all nations, and no doubt we will be hated by all nations. And as I've said, how can they hate us if they don't We know that we exist? We've got to do a far more powerful work. That time is coming, and that time is coming sooner than a lot of you realize. And I hope you can get involved and really think about it. So God wants us to do a powerful work and be known. And yet most of us are not close to God. Most of us are rifting. We do not have the zeal. We do not have the faith to the degree that we should, brethren, even in God's church today. Turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Now, here were 70 other young men. He sent them out two by two, two, 35 teams of young men beside the original apostles. These were not apostles. You know, some of you have thought, and a lot of our brethren have thought, well, we can't do all these works and miracles because we're not apostles. No, these were not apostles. He sent them out and told them to go out to these places. And he said, whatever city, verse 8, you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And notice verse 9, heal the sick. So we are to heal the sick. God tells us that today, of course, in other scriptures, but he told those men to do that there. Not the apostles, but 70 other young men. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. He didn't say, give your heart to the Lord. He said, the kingdom of God has come near you. That was the preaching. You don't find the apostles saying, please accept Jesus. Please give your heart to Jesus. They didn't say that at all. They talked about the kingdom of God, surrendering to God, obeying God, repenting of their sins, and sin is the transgression of God's law. And so then they went out and did this. And what about casting out demons? Then verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they did cast out demons. 
as I've mentioned so many times, he sent the apostles, he sent these fellows out, 70 of them. He told them to do three things. Preach the gospel of the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. Those three things. Those things have not been done away. And those things were not done just by the apostles. They were done by 70 others also. And as you read in Acts, the eighth chapter, they were done by Philip who was just ordained uh, a deacon, but began to be used as an evangelist, no doubt, by that time. So we do need to understand and recognize that these things are that way. These things have not been changed. Now let's go on, my brethren, to uh, Luke, the 18th chapter. Turn to Luke 18, if you would. Luke 18, verse 1. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. You constantly need to pray. Most of us don't do that. We pray a little bit. Maybe we'll pray 15, 20 minutes in the morning and don't pray again until the next day. As I said, we need to be walking with God, all of us, have our heart in God's way. We're, we're constantly praying to God, talking to God all day long. And he said there was a certain judge who did not fear God. No, he was not converted. No regard men, kind of hard-hearted, self-made man. And a widow came, you know, kept saying, please avenge me, and he wouldn't hear. Yet because she kept coming and kept coming, he finally said, this widow troubles me, and I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. He wasn't some vicious man, at least. He thought, this poor woman, she just keeps coming, and to get her off my back, I'd better do what she says and hear her case. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out, you see, like this widow kept coming and kept coming, who cry out day and night to him. In the daytime they're praying and the nighttime coming, and the next morning they're praying, and the next afternoon like King David, evening, morning, and a noon I'll pray and seek your face. We just read that or sang that in one of the songs before we started the service. Three times a day David prayed. Psalm 55. Psalm 55 and verse 18, I think it is. Three times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day at the risk of his own life. Daniel 6, verse 10. And no doubt in prayer all day long. She kept coming. And Goel, not God, here he's elect who keep coming. Day and night, though he bear along with them. He may not hear them right away. He may test their faith. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And the New King James has it that way. Will he really find faith? Indicating that real faith is going to be in very short supply. Very short supply, brethren. God is not real even to many of us as much as he should be. And we've got to remedy that. We've got to come to understand that God is moving now. And I've told you this before. But when I came to Ambassador College, and I've been hearing Mr. Armstrong since uh, the winter of 1944-1945, the Second World War was raging. And Mr. Armstrong said, Germany is being pulverized by British bombers by night. They had radar and American bombers by day. They will come back, he said. And boy, did they. They did come back. And now they're the leader economically and militarily and to a certain extent politically along with France of the European empire that's developing today. They have come back with great power. Now they'll be joined by nine other nations under one supreme dictator, as we know, called the Beast. He said that America and Britain 
had been given great blessings, but we would be coming down slowly. And certainly Britain has come down. He said, we've been given the gates of our enemies. And he said, these gates will come down. I was there in 1954 along with Dick Armstrong and Mr. Armstrong's personal campaigns. In Belfast, 700 people turned out in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and then up in Glasgow, Scotland, and down in Manchester, and down in London. He said, God has given you British people the, the, the Suez Canal and all these other great sea gates, Singapore and the Malacca Straits and these other places. He said, unless you turn back to the real God of the Bible and start keeping his commandments, God will take these gates away. How could this little old man over away off from his home, off in England with a little tiny church, say that? How could he say that? Nobody else was saying that. I mean it, brethren, nobody else. But it happened. Two years later, my wife and I were sent back over there, and right while we were in England in the winter of 1956-7, it started to happen. And we had our offices at 4243 Cranbourne Street, just off Leicester Square, and the guys in the office were friendly with us. We visited with them. We came in one morning, and they kind of looked a little offish. They were, they were cutting. They weren't mean, but they said, well, we don't love you today, you know. And because uh, uh, John Foster Dulles had pressured President Eisenhower to force the British, French, and Israeli paratroopers out of the Suez. The Egyptians had taken it over stealthily, quickly, but they'd come in and taken it back. And our Secretary of State, who was very liberal apparently and didn't understand what was happening, forced, you know, or caused us to force them to back out because America had greater, greater pressure. Later, Winston Churchill called uh, uh, our, our Secretary of State uh, Dulles, he said, dull, duller, Dulles. <laughs> and uh, he, he didn't like that at all. And he, that was a terrible mistake Mr. Dulles made. But British, the British lost the Great Seagate. Later they lost the Simonson's base controlling the tip of, uh, around, uh, Cape of Good Hope, saving thousands of miles. Later they lost, uh, the, uh, uh, Bob El Mondab, the, the northern entrance to the Red Sea. Later, they lost Singapore and the Malacca Straits. And if you look at the Indonesian continent or subcontinent, these huge string of islands, how far around do the ships have to go in time of war if there's trouble, if they can't go through that strait of Malacca? It saves a lot of time and a lot of money and is very powerful militarily, very important. Then later, President uh, uh, Carter caused the United States and the Congress to give up, of course, our great sea gate, the Panama Canal. They're all gone. Only two of any consequence are less. And there are, of course, Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands controlling uh, Cape Horn around South America. And I think they're both going to go in due time, but you watch. Because the Argentinians are constantly pressuring to get that back, the Falkland Islands and the Spanish and the North Africans are pressuring to get Britain out of Gibraltar. And probably all the gates will be gone. God doesn't say that specifically, of course, so I can't say that. But that may well happen. You watch. These are not tiny things. Your tiny little church folks and your tiny little church young people around the world, we said that and nobody else said it. Nobody. Go back and look. Ask. You can get it. Some of you Sharpies on the Internet, find out what people were saying back then. They didn't say that. We said it. Massive interventions in human history. This church did know God is guiding things in a big way. And we ought to begin to realize that that God is real. 
And yet we don't have the faith we ought to have that that God is real. He's This book is inspired by that great God. And God Almighty backs up His true church. And His true church is that church which follows the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ and the original apostles. And that's what we do, as you know. And we're not doing it perfectly, as Mr. Bajur pointed out. We've got to get closer to God. We've got to do it more perfectly. But we certainly have the understanding, basically. And we've got to even grow on greater understanding. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 35. Paul writes these original uh, Christians here in Palestine, most of them Jewish, who knew the truth from the beginning. He said in verse 35, do, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And I tell you, older brethren in the church, don't give up and quit. Don't get right near the finish line and then you turn aside. How ridiculous that is. Keep moving. Keep moving. When I used to run the mile, I was not great and I was not some great Olympic star. I would not have been. I was not built that way. But I did do well in my local high school and in the state of Missouri. I ran the best mile one year of a high schooler in Missouri. And you know, you get awfully tired and you come around the end of the second lap and you begin to pant and your heart pounds and the end of the third lap and your heart really pounds. But then they shoot, and I guess it's partly psychological, someone figured it out long ago, they shoot a gun right at the end of the third lap. They call that the gun lap. Bang! And somehow that gets your adrenaline going again. you got to do it. got to do it. One more lap to go and you keep going and you push yourself if you're going to win. If you're not a winner, you don't push yourself. But if you are a winner, you do push yourself, and you're not afraid of pushing yourself. And that's what all of us have got to do spiritually. You will not have a heart attack. <laughs> I might have had a heart attack, but I didn't think about that as a kid, and I had a strong heart. So spiritually, if you push yourself, you will not have a heart attack. You know that. So you can push yourself. Don't give up near the finish line, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. He is going to come. I know a lot of you have heard about that for years, but the things we said have been coming one after the other after the other. It's just that God says a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, and in his time schedule, the fact that some of these things are 10 or 15 years apart rather than 10 or 15 days apart, seems like a long time to a young person, if you follow me. But from God's point of view, it's not a very long time. Most of them are all going to wind up in my lifetime. And I think you understand that, certainly in the lifetimes of most of you young people. Those things are, that you've heard about have begun to happen already. So he says, yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. He will not fool around. He will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. We've got to build faith and believe and know and know that we know. And that faith begets courage. And that faith and courage begets action. And that then begets endurance. And they're willing to hang in there and persevere to the end. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does not appreciate people who draw back. <clears throat> But we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Then he goes on, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
faith is not in something you already have. You don't have to have faith. If God heals you immediately, you don't have to have faith. But if God tests your faith for a while on that or any other thing, then you've got to exercise faith for a while. Faith is your evidence. God has said so, and you know, and you know that you know that God is going to back it up. When the great God makes clear he's going to cause certain things to happen to this nation and to the nations of Israel at the time of the end, the house of Israel, plus the Jewish people, then you should know and know that you know, yes, it's going to happen. And as I've just taught, got through telling you, a lot of it has already happened, specifically. Just one point after the other. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The worlds were framed by the word of God. Abel offered a sacrifice that was more acceptable because of faith. Enoch was translated because he trusted God. But, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible. Yet, that's a strong statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Yes, you can have love, and you should. You should have wisdom. You should have kindness and patience and long-suffering and all this kind of thing. But you've also got to have faith. Remember, Paul said in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, these three things abide, faith, put that first, hope, love, these three. You've got to believe God and know that God is there and know that God is going to do what he has said that he would do, and that is faith. You've got to believe God, otherwise you're thinking God is a liar. You don't mean to think of it that way. But that is, in a sense, what you're thinking, that maybe God's not real. He's not true. He's not going to do what he said. And God does not appreciate that. He wants you to believe him and believe what he said. Faith. Then hope, a positive attitude. And then love. Worship and adoration to God and genuine outflowing concern and kindness and mercy to those around you. And that doesn't mean that you hate homosexuals I may have given some newer ones that impression. You know, you don't have, I don't hate homosexuals. I've counseled a bunch of them, spent hours with them, talked to them. I found that every single one I counseled, all mine happened to be men, homosexuals, but every one of them had a missing father. The father was either dead or divorced or a drunkard or something, and because they were not able to have a real father figure and help, somehow they went the other way. That's another story. You want to help them, and God can have mercy on them. God saves us from our sins. God does not save us in our sins. And there's quite a difference. So, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder, notice, of those who diligently seek him, not half-heartedly seek him, but as I pointed out there in Luke 18, those who cry out, not just mutter, not repeat, just memorize prayers. I remember working for this farmer up in northern Kansas back in 1945, a very nice man. He was not one who lived wild and cussed. He was sincere. He belonged to mainstream church. But I don't know if we did it every meal, but nearly every meal we would pray over the food. And he'd say, okay, now we'll pray. And then he would go, our Father, we thank you for these, your gracious gifts, blah, 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 blah. Amen. And then his wife would jump up real quick, almost before he finished saying, him, Oh, well, now we could get back to real life, you know. And she was all buzzing around. And, and as though they had got that done, now we can do something else. Why? Because God was not real. And because he did not know how to pray, he just muttered exactly the same words. 
the same words he'd memorized, buh, 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 and then it was over. And, of course, he didn't understand. God didn't call him. But we're not to pray that way. We're to talk to God heartfeltly and cry out to God and say, Father, help us. And as Mr. Bajor said, God is working with us. And God is fashioning us, molding us. God is teaching us lessons. He's trying to get through to our heads why we're here, what it's all about, where we're going, so that he becomes real to us and that his ways become real. And having been in God's church now for nearly 54 years since my baptism, brethren, I have seen and I can testify that down through those 54 years, and I could name names and people and families and situations, which is not my purpose today, but to the degree, to the degree that people in God's church followed God's ways, different persons, different families, to that degree they were blessed. And I've seen that over and over. Some had a good front. They put up a good front, but later came out that they were hypocrites. But to the degree that people really followed God's ways, to that degree they were blessed. I could see that. I know that. And that's what happened. Sometimes there are individual variations, you know, where you had bad start or you have different family uh, backgrounds and various things of that sort that have an effect. But still, you're blessed more as you obey God. And you're cursed more as you disobey God. It just works that way. It's very real. God says that over and over. <clears throat> but don't doubt it. It's a reality. All right? We've got to put our faith and trust in God. And we've got to cry out to God, as I said, as it says in Luke chapter 18, those who cry out night and day, then they will be blessed. God's more real to them, you see, because then the more they cry out, the more answers they get, and God is more real or they wouldn't cry out in the first place. If God's not real, you just mutter a prayer to some bow, some force way off in the sky. You don't really know. One of Mr. Armstrong's favorite verses, connection with prayer and faith, is found back here in the book of Hosea. Uh, turn there with me, if you would, at this point. Hosea chapter uh, 7. Hosea 7. I got uh, some evil people ganged up on me last night, and they kind of conned me into giving a Bible study. I came to get for some, some free pizza <laughs> with the office, and uh, suddenly I found myself giving a Bible study. <laughs> so I just grabbed the Bible, and we went through Hosea, the whole book, just kind of the overview and how it definitely applies to us. But here's a passage we covered last night, Hosea 7, verse 8. Ephraim, and Ephraim is often used as the lead nation of Israel. You know, he was the most powerful one, the one that had the birthright. Often Ephraim and Manasseh lumped together. Ephraim had the greater blessing. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength. And you see that all over. And that's nothing against our Gentile brethren who are among us. It's just that God has allowed that to happen to where our strength as a people is watered down and more and more others are rising up and our native-born people here are going down. That's just the way it's going to be because of our sins. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, and he doesn't know it. A lot of our young people don't know it because they don't remember how powerful Britain was. And they don't remember when the United States was at peace and not hated all over the earth. And they don't remember the time, the peaceful, a clean living nation we had basically during, let's say, the eight years President Eisenhower was in power and a lot of other times like that. Gray hairs. Our economy is in terrible trouble. Our national debt is the greatest on the face of the earth. 
When I was growing up, of course, we were the world's greatest lender. And we became the world's greatest lender up until, what was it, 10 or 15 years ago, something like that. Now we're the world's greatest debtor all of a sudden. And that debt is mounting and mounting. And again, that's not real to a lot of you folks, not just the young people, because you haven't read about it. Start reading about it. And you'll begin to see that every year we're going to have to pay more and more and more just to service that debt. And that means we're going to either have to print more money from the printing presses and have inflation, or we're going to lower our standard of living, which is it going to be? Probably partly both. And then when Japan decides to recall their government bonds, and Germany does, and France does, and Italy does, and these other nations, we're going to be in horrible trouble, and the dollar will drop like a rock. But God will keep us going a while longer, probably for the sake of this work. Mr. Armstrong used to say things like that. And I thought, well, you know, we're still a little work and this is just him talking. Well, God did intervene. And I may not be the one to finish the work. Perhaps some of these younger ministers will. But God does have concern for this work. Whether you think so or not, he does intervene in world affairs for the sake of this work sometimes, as well as for his overall purpose. So gray hairs are here and there, yet he does not know it. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. See, our nation's getting weaker, but people don't get it. They don't seek God. Are they ready seeking God? No, they're going the other way. Britain is one of the most irreligious peoples on the face of the earth now. Ephraim is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They're going to be making alliances with all these nations. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. And brethren, we are going to get out this message. Mr. Armstrong did to the ability he had and did a good job within that time frame and at that point. But that work was not finished. As he himself said, the work, the greatest work for the church is yet ahead of us. That's what he said, and we'd better believe it. The most powerful work has to be yet done. I've told you this before, but just months before he died, my wife and I were in Britain, and I asked all five of the leading men over there, all five, how many of the people in the British Isles have heard of Herbert Armstrong, Garner Ted Armstrong, Plain Truth Magazine, Ambassador College, you know, Worldwide Church of God? How many of even know that we exist? And every single one of them told me individually about one out of a hundred, about one percent. Ninety-nine percent of the mother country of our English-speaking world had never even heard of our existence. And of the one percent who had heard of our existence, very few of them had any understanding of what we taught at all. And my wife and I were in Britain last summer. And we were there other number of times recently, and a lot of you have been there. You know that. You walk around the streets of London and go up and down the area around Trafalgar Square and all these other places packed with people, all the other people. If you talked to them, have you heard of, you know, this or that? No, they haven't heard of it. They don't know anything about it. Armstrong? We've heard of Armstrong who landed on the moon, Neil Armstrong. We've heard of Louis Armstrong, the jazz man. They have not heard of Herbert Armstrong. That's nothing against Mr. Armstrong. He did the best he could. We helped him. I helped him with my whole life for 40 years. Not 40 years, but for 36 years. Then he died a little bit later. All right? And then I had to leave because they were wrecking everything that he built and we built together. We had to get out and start and revive the work of God and start the global and now living church of God. 
But brethren, we have got to learn to seek God with our hearts. And because he said, I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. They have heard many Americans and Canadians, and we're going to get that message out even more. It's not God's will that people say, God, God, why are you doing this? You didn't tell us. No, he will tell them through us or through someone else if we won't do it. Woe to them. They have fled from me. Destruction to them. Who is Israel? We are. We're the house of Israel. They're the ones he's talking about right here if you look at the context of this whole chapter. The house of Israel and Ephraim. He said, verse uh, uh, 14, They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. And Mr. Armstrong, of course, used to quote the Moffat version. They did not put their hearts in their prayers. That's what it's talking about. Our people do not do that. How many of you, brethren, how many of you, brethren, around the world watching this later? Yes, you pray, and maybe you have a little bit more zeal than you did growing up in some Protestant church or repeating responsive readings or Catholic prayers or something. But how many of you cry out, Father, help me, rebuke and chasten me, clean me up, help me be like you are, help me really reflect the image of Christ, please bless this work. Help us to move forward. These people need the truth, Father. Help them. Help us to reach them. How many pray like that? Cry out. They did not put their hearts in their prayers. Mr. Armstrong said a number of times to our church, and I'm sure Mr. Partin must have heard of me, he said one of the big things that I think we're lacking even in God's church is that people do not put their hearts in their prayers. And brethren, if you have faith, and begin to think about this sermon and how real God is, perhaps you'll put your hearts in your prayers even more. All right. So we are going to have to do the great works that God's early servants did. If we have faith, that will come. Notice now, brethren, in Mark chapter 3. Let's go back to the New Testament at this point, And I'm going to the uh, third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. Notice here, beginning uh, in verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called uh, to him those whom he wanted, and they came. Then he appointed, they didn't have any voting for the twelve apostles or anyone else at any time in the Bible. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out. All right, Christ sent them out to do what? Three things. Number one, to preach. Number two, to have power to heal sicknesses. And number three, to cast out demons. All right, I already gave you that in Luke uh, 10. That's what the 70 others also did, not just the apostles. So he sent the apostles out, just reminding you. Those were the three things repeated many times in the Gospels that he wanted his servants to do. Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Brethren, if we start praying if we start fasting, if we build faith, we will have more healings, we will have more blessings in God's church. And again, that does not mean it's a sin to go to a doctor for certain things. And I've said that. And we in the Council of Elders, under my leadership, because I certainly did not fight it, I'm the one who brought it up, as all of them can tell you. But there are things we had to realize that doctors can do and should do, and each one has to choose. Well, back here in chapter 2, I'm digressing, but let's go back to Mark 2 for a minute, verse 17. 
when they condemned him and he eats with drinks with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. See, those who are well, but those who are sick. You finish the sentence, of course, it's definitely implied that those who are sick do have need of a physician. That's exactly what he's saying there. So it's not wrong to go to a physician. It's just that you've got to put your ultimate faith in God, the God to guide things, to intervene and go above and beyond. And certainly you'll use wisdom if you don't go too much or too often and be aware of the side effects of all of the operations, the side effects of every single drug. Every drug has a bad side effect. The doctors admit that. They don't hide it. They know that. You've got to think carefully, use your mind, be careful, but there are things you can do and perhaps should do more than we used to understand in the past. But above and beyond man is God. And when these disease epidemics start to start to take place in a major way, then what is going to happen? The hospitals and the whole health care system is going to shut down. It's going to be overwhelmed and they won't be able even to see all the people that are sick. They're going to run out of medicines and run out of personnel. And they're also going to have new diseases coming at them like theory, so-called incurable diseases that only God can heal. And then we have to trust God, don't we? So we better start building that faith now and having more healings even for other things. So we're not trying to say you're a sinner if you look to, to a doctor or to have doctors help or care, but you'd better always bring God into the picture. Don't be like, uh, was it Ahaziah? He sought to the physicians and not to God, you see. Don't seek to them and not to God. Say, Father, guide me. And if you have something done, your child's about to die of appendicitis and you have the appendix of the child cut out, the doctors will put you in jail and take the child from you if that's what happened. God could heal, but if he didn't, you'd be in trouble. It may not be wrong to have that done. Other things like that, we know. We've taught that for years. Mr. Armstrong taught that in case some of you think I'm getting liberal. He told many people, oh, you'd better do that. And all of you older brethren know that. But anyway, uh, so we've got to have God's faith, though, for more healings and know that this is God's will. And when it's time, he's going to heal us supernaturally more and more according to our faith, which is certainly the best way to be healed uh, if, uh, if uh, we do our part, of course. Now let's turn, if you would, to chapter 4. Mark 4 and verse 36. Now, when uh, they had left the multitude, he'd been talking to a whole bunch of people and giving parables. While they took him along in the boat, Jesus had been talking and teaching and healing and blessing. He was tired. Yes, he was Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But he was in the flesh, and his physical body got very tired. And other little boats were with them as they went along. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were beginning to beat in the boat. It was filling, you know, and you can imagine that. Literal waves beating into their boat, and the boat was about to sink in this great big lake. It wasn't an ocean, but it was a great big lake. I've been there, and he was about to drown. They were, but he was asleep on a pillow. Jesus had perfect peace. <laughs> he was tired. He went to sleep. He knew everything would be all right. And the boat was bouncing around. And he was snoring, so to speak. He might have literally been snoring. That's not a sin. He was totally zonked out. And what did these young men do? Instead of having faith and praying to God, they ought to have known by now, they got hysterical. And they woke him up, you see, and they said, Don't you see that we're perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. He got right up, probably held out his hand and said, Peace, be still. 
and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you, these twelve young men, still not even converted? The Holy Spirit was with them, but not yet in them, because the day of Pentecost had not yet come. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? What's wrong with you guys? Why can't you have faith? And brethren, think about this. This means you and you and you and every one of us and your brethren out there. If he were here, he'd say that to many of us. How come you can't have faith? We can have faith. God can calm the winds in a big ocean storm for us if we need it. You know, we could ask the captain to do better running the ship or whatever it is. But if he can't do that and other things happen, what does God want us to do? God wants us to know that he really is our father. He is in charge of the elements. He made them and he will intervene if we put our faith and trust in him. If you read the personal letters of Herbert W. and Loma Armstrong from England um, on their trip to Britain and uh, so on in 1956, I think it was, and I think part of this is in the autobiography, if I remember. He talks about being on the big ship going to Britain. And they got in the worst storm, the captain of this major ocean liner said he'd ever been in. And they're really going up and down and all over the place like a little cork in a great big bathtub or something. This big ocean liner was scary. He did go up on deck and he prayed to God, Mr. Armstrong did, and the storm did calm down. You say, do you believe Mr. Armstrong? Yes, because I got to know him for 36 years and I found out that he was not a liar. And he didn't go around bragging about all kinds of things like that. You'd only hear about that from him maybe two or three times in his whole life. Now, if you go to some churches, they brag, oh, God did me this and God spoke to me last night. They all have their spiel. It's ridiculous. Mr. Armstrong was not like that. When he told a story like that, it was very meaningful. God did hear him, and God calmed the storm. Don't you have any faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? We've got to build, my brethren, that kind of faith, because we're going to be in a lot of storms. We're going to be in spiritual storms. We're going to be in political storms of this nation and other nations, and military storms where they're attacking us persecution on the church of God where they're trying to run us out of town and beat us up, throw some of us in jail. And, of course, we will be in literal physical storms. And we've got to have faith and trust in God. So let's understand. Anyway, that's a very important concept. Why don't you have faith? Jesus was telling these fellows. And they weren't even converted yet. Turn to chapter 5, verse 34, Mark 5. And I'm going to begin reading now, brethren, in verse uh, 34. He said to this woman who had this uh, issue of blood all those years, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Have faith. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. And then while he was still speaking, this ruler had asked him to come and pray for his little daughter, you know, who is dying. And the people came and said this to this uh, this rabbi, this chief ruler of the synagogue, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. And Jesus heard that. And he said, verse 36, do not be afraid, but believe. He heard what they said. And Jesus, being the son of God, probably literally knew. Yes, this little girl over there, a mile or two or five away, wherever it was, is dead. He knew that, no doubt. The girl is dead. Jesus, oh, oh, too late. 
panic. No. He said, don't be afraid, but believe. And that's what God is telling us here. And he permitted no one to go with him. Notice this example, except Peter, James, and John, the three leading apostles. Peter is mentioned first. And he took them in alone, not to have a whole mob in there. And often spent more time teaching those three as the leaders. And so he came in and said, why is this commotion? And the dead, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. Kind of a sarcastic, ah, you're crazy. The little girl's dead. Don't you know anything? And so on. Because they didn't have respect to him. But he put them all out. Perhaps asked the father's permission, no doubt. But he said, you guys get out of here. He could not have that attitude of sarcasm and that faithless attitude in the room to have that kind of miracle. He said, you guys get out of here. And he took the father and mother, the child and those with him, and entered in where the child was lying. And he took the little girl by the hand and said, Talithakumi, which means literally, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old, and they were amazed. They were overcome with great amazement, just shocked. Little girl's body probably turned cold, and all of a sudden she kind of shuddered, and then she sat up, and Jesus said, Come on up, honey, and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And he commanded strictly that no one should know it, and he said that something should be given her to eat. So you've got to have faith. Don't be fearful, but believe, Jesus said. And we've got to learn from that, brethren. Chapter 6, Mark 6, verse 3. They were saying when he went back home to Nazareth, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? We know his brothers. This is just a guy living down the road here, and who's he? Mary was not the Virgin Mary. Mary had several other children by her husband, and they knew that. And they were offended at him. Yes, Jesus said, a prophet is not without without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives and in his own house. You see, a true prophet, a true minister of God does not even have the same honor uh, in his own country, that is, no doubt, his part of the country, or among his own relatives, or in his own house, because it's hard. I know that my wife loves me deeply, and I love her deeply and very deeply appreciate, but she can't think I'm ten feet tall. She knows all of the problems. <laughs> She'll write a book someday, you know, The Plain Truth About Roderick Meredith, all of the little idiosyncrasies that I have. And it's hard for any of you wives here to look past those things and have the deep respect to see, well, your husband, you know, Mrs. Apartian, knows Mr. Apartian's strange French idiosyncrasies. <laughs> I'm kidding. But she sees that. And it's hard for our wives or for even some of you in the local church who see us more regularly to see beyond and say, well, these are very physical human beings. You better believe it. They're not perfect. You better believe it. But somehow God is using them, you see. So God tells us that through Jesus Christ. Verse uh, 5, now he could do no mighty work. Here was the very Son of God there, and he could do no mighty work, it says. And, of course, in the Matthew's account, look it up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. It says, because of their unbelief. That's why he couldn't. They did not believe. Jesus did not function as well in that way in a carnal, doubting sarcastic atmosphere. Even the Son of God, God would not honor that kind of attitude in a room. 
But he could not do any mighty work there, even Jesus, except that he laid hands. Yes, we do lay hands on you that are sick. Some of you know that after church. We have a bottle of olive oil and we will pray for you. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them, even the Son of God. And he marveled because of their unbelief. But Matthew says he could not do it because of their unbelief. He adds that thought. So that's why he was not able to do that in that place. So that's important. You've got to have faith. If you want a whole lot of healings, then you'd better develop an atmosphere of faith. We'd better develop an atmosphere of faith together in this church right here and all over the earth among you brethren. An atmosphere of faith, that's so important. And as we get near the end, we've got to really believe God, love God, worship God, cry out to God knowing He's there and knowing He backs these things up with tremendous power. Now, brethren, uh, turn, if you would, to verse 7. He called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits and so on. And he, as he sent them out, well, they went out preaching. And so, verse 12, he sent them out and they did what? They preached that people should repent. Number one, he didn't say that people would say, give their heart to the Lord. Think about that. To read Billy Graham's column and every day he just says, well... You know, you've just got to, uh, how does he say it? Different ways, but just give your heart to the Lord or, or uh, accept Jesus or respond to Jesus or something, but not repent. You've got to repent of your sins. Repent means to turn around and go the other way. That's what they always said, God's true servants. So they first were to preach, and then they cast out many demons. Many demons were cast out. And thirdly, anointed with oil. Most of our ministers carry a little vial of oil. They anointed with oil those who were sick and healed them. Again, those examples all the way through of God's true servants and what they did. And Jesus Christ, as I said, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice now chapter 6, verse 41. Chapter 6, verse 41. He had these great, this big mob of 5,000 men beside women and children, perhaps 15 to 35,000 people depending on the number of children sitting down here. And he began to feed them with the five loaves and two fish. Verse 41, he, took, he looked up to heaven. They were outside. He looked up to God, so to speak, in the heavens as he prayed, not down, looked up and blessed these and asked God's blessing on this food and divided them. And so all ate and were filled and took up 12 baskets. And those who ate were 5,000 men. And back in Matthew 14:21, it says, beside women and children. That's Matthew 14, verse 21. Immediately he made his disciples get into boat, and they went on off. And then he sent the multitude away, and he departed to a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, in the middle of this big lake several miles out there, when you ask, check on the other accounts, and he was alone on the land. So here's this little boat bobbing around out there in the middle of the sea, the winds against them. And so when he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night he came to them. Now, one of the other accounts shows that he went up to the mountain to pray. In fact, it says that back here in verse 46. When he sent them away, he went up to the mountain to pray. And he must have prayed, frankly, several hours because of the time he starts walking out there. As you see, brethren, when is it? It's the fourth watch of the night. He sent these people away, everything indicates, while it was still daytime, so they could go home, you know, in the daylight. And then he stays there and prays. 
And the fourth watch of the night, as the commentaries all point out, is 3 to 6 a.m. So here we have 3.30 to 5.30 a.m., something like that, early morning, hours after he'd sent the people away. He may have prayed four to six or seven hours to God, got very close to his Father in heaven there, pouring out his heart to God. Then he's filled with God's Spirit. Then he literally walks on the water, and they see him coming across, and they were scared and screamed and wondered, what is this? And he says in verse 50, be of good cheer, it's me, don't be afraid. And then he went up into the boat, and right when he went up into the boat, the wind that had held them back, that wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now, some of the commentaries point out the very strong language here in the Greek. They were amazed, it says, a very strong word here in the original Greek, and then it says uh, they were greatly amazed and in themselves beyond measure, just absolutely astonished and marveled. They were just shaking and chills up. And, What's going on? We don't understand this. Here you're right there on walking on the water. We, we don't get it. What's going on? We can't believe this. Here you are walking on the water. They couldn't believe it. Absolutely astonished. Why? Verse 52 gives the answer. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And my brethren, many among us are like that. And certainly most of the world is like that. Their heart is hardened. And even when God has healed, and even when these awesome things have intervened, and tremendous international things have taken place, the Suez Canal, gone. The Panama Canal, gone. All those things I heard Mr. Armstrong talk about, Singapore and the Malacca Straits, gone. The Simonson Agreement, the control of South Africa, gone. The Bab el the northern entrance of the Red Sea, gone. All those other, the Strait of Hormuz, yes, Britain used to control that. That's gone. Gate after gate after gate is gone. Britain's empire is no more. It's gone. Does that astonish us? No, we take it all for granted. We don't remember the miracles of the loaves and the fishes, that God said it through his servant ahead of time, and it happened. Massive things involving millions of people. Trillions of dollars of world goods affected by having to go around further in a time of war, taking more time and making more danger for the Allies because of it. We don't remember the miracle of the loaves and the fishes because sometimes our heart is hardened. Will we remember the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? Let me describe a few miracles, brethren. Just within the last couple of days, I've heard comment after comment. A night before last, my son Jim called from L.A. and checked up on some of this. And I feel sincerely that we have experienced recently three absolute miracles. We've had good things happen to others. Don't get me wrong. But three of these are real miracles. Mr. Ron Wheeler's house was absolutely surrounded by fire out there. And from definite reports, his house is apparently the only one still standing. The only one, all the other houses in that row were burned, and his house alone. Secondly, which is even more definite, and I think this first is definite from all we've heard, the secondly, my son did talk personally to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, 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 Doug, Wheat, uh, Doug uh, Young, Many of you from Pasadena, from uh, San Diego, I mean, remember Doug Young and his wife and uh, Debbie. And their whole neighborhood was burned. 
and the house literally burned all around their house and did not burn their house. Their house just stands like a beacon. It isn't all burned and just the chimney standing. No, the whole house is intact. It was not burned. You say, well, all this is just coincidence. Oh, it is? Here's two. Then, a few weeks ago, within the last two months, Mr. Bryce told me about the third one. Up in Canada, a terrible forest fire was raging nearby the home of Mr. and Mrs. Barry Walker. Mr. Walker is one of our fine local elders up in that area. And Mr. Bryce said he heard this from Mr. and Mrs. Walker and three other witnesses. This fire came right, apparently they were having guests that night. The fire came right up to the ridge, about 50, 100 yards ahead, was coming right toward them. And there had been no weather reports indicating anything. And all of a sudden, when the fire gets to the ridge, it was going to come right down on them. A unusual, powerful thunderstorm comes up. Tremendous rain beat down, and the, the rain stopped right there. The fire stopped right there, I mean. And their house and their property even was totally spared. Mr. and Mrs. Barry Walker. These are God's servants, all of them. And God spared them. Our Father in heaven has given us some loaves and fishes and something even better. Let's not forget that God is alive. I think I would be remiss in my duty. You may later find out, well, there were one or two chimneys or parts of houses or something around Juan Wheaters. I'm not as positive, but I'm, everything indicates it. But I'm saying overall, these are really miracles. So see the big picture. God is intervening, and we've got to understand and give God thanks. Will you and I remember and appreciate, can we have more faith in God? Can we remember the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? Turn to Mark 11, brethren. Now, turn to Mark chapter 11. Remember, Jesus cursed this fig tree, and the next morning they walked by, and it was gone. It was, it was cursed. It was dead. And verse 21, Mark 11, 21, Peter, remembering, said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered, Have faith in God. You better believe we need faith in God in the years ahead. And we need faith in God that God is going to do a powerful work that we will be known and be hated of all nations because we'll do enough of the work they'll know who we are, that His will will be done. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations as a witness, and then the end will come. Who's going to do it? Who is doing it? We're doing it more than anyone else. You know that as far as the fullness of it. No question about it if you understand. I'm not trying to go into detail about the other groups. I could, but that's not my point. You figure it out. Have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt. Well, yeah, but. Okay, you get off that stuff. Well, yeah, but. No, you need not to get on that. Get off of that. This doubt, all this, this cynicism, we're not to have that in our hearts. You've got to not doubt but believe that those things he says will come to pass. He will have whatever he says. That's because you've been drinking into this word. You're feeding on Christ. God becomes more real to you. You beseech God for faith. You exercise faith day by day and month by month. And just like if you build your bicep, it gets bigger and stronger. You know, keep doing those chin-ups and those, those curls and you get a bigger bicep. Mine doesn't get as big as it used to. I'm getting old. <laughs> but it still works. Do it. And it works. You build faith. 
as you walk with God, and God will give you faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Exercise faith, grow in faith. If you believe that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, verse 24, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. You've got to believe. You've got to build big faith. Because we have a big work yet to do. We've got to understand that and build that attitude. Years ago, when we were first at Big Sandy, Mr. Jimmy Priddle was one of our ministers, and his wife, I mean his mother, excuse me, was dying of a terrible situation. And I think it was cancer, and I'm sure I used to remember just exactly, but she was had been given up. Oh, I know what it was, radiation. The doctors had cooked her with radiation. They told her, well, sorry, we've cooked your intestines and stomach. She couldn't pass food or anything. And uh, so they said, we're sorry. You know, she's going to die. And I talked later to Jim Friddle about it, and he said, that's right. I checked up on Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong told the story, and the main story did not come from Mr. Armstrong, but from Mr. Uh, uh, the other minister who was there. I can't think of his name right now. Ken Swisher was there when he did it. And Mr. Armstrong got so steamed up, and he'd been preaching and praying a lot during the days of unleavened bread that spring at Big Sandy. He simply didn't even kneel. He clapped hands. He said, Father, the doctors have virtually killed this woman. She's dying. Have mercy. Intervene and heal her just powerfully and heartfeltly. And she began to get better from that time on. And God completely healed her. But the doctors had said the, because of radiation, literally her, her intestines, I think it was, were just like leather. They were cooked. They couldn't pass any food or any water. She was dead. Then we had a woman in the Salt Lake City Church named Mrs. Beam. A lot of you older brethren get tired of hearing this, but I, we must not get tired of it. Remember what God did. Just like a beam in the ceiling. She had had one breast removed because of breast cancer before she came in the church. Her husband was in the church, and he, she knew about it. Apparently, it was not hostile. But after that, she was afraid and did come into the church. But then in the church, the breast cancer came in the other breast. And then she was willing to put her trust in God, and knowing it might have spread elsewhere, and uh, simply trusted God. And they had a whole relay of women taking care of her, and I talked to them. So I'll tell you later. I'm from Missouri. I like to check up myself, yes. And they were, because she was so weak and her husband had to keep his jobs to, to support the family, you know, so they had enough money for hospital bills and everything else. They had a whole bunch of deaconesses and other women taking care of her, five or seven of them, and relays, giving help washing her, feeding her, everything, and so on. And she was in such horrible pain, finally, after being anointed and prayed for for weeks, as the breast cancer got worse and worse, she was literally clawing the walls and scratching herself and screaming. And she then called or had them call the minister and say, come and pray for me now and ask God to either heal me right now or let me die. I can't stand it. And he came and he prayed the prayingest prayer he'd ever prayed, as he told me himself, it was just because the women were crying. And she was screaming and shaking, and he just begged God and cried out to God. And I said, did God heal her right then? And he said, well, no, even then God tested it. I, I, you know, I, it was really kind of scary in a way, because she kept on 
And, and then within about, it seemed like eternity, but he said it was probably just 30 to 90 seconds after he prayed and they said amen. Then she began to be more quiet and suddenly her hands relaxed and she looked at him, relaxed, it's gone. And she felt something in her body and it was gone. And her body then began to slough off through the bowel uh, dead tissue over a period of weeks following that. The cancer went out that way as God guided it that way. And she never got it again that we know of. She was totally healed. A tremendous, wonderful miracle. What happened to her? She and her husband moved later to Hawaii for some reason, maybe his job, and she left the church. She left the church. You think about that. Spiritual healing is more important than physical healing. It really, really is when you get it, when you grasp what it's all about, that God is reproducing himself. We had other people leave the church, whom I won't name, but some of you remember the one man in Pasadena and crippled and so on, others like that. Spiritual healing is most important, but boy, God healed her miraculously. Then, during that same period of time, I was teaching freshman Bible and coming into the class, uh, uh, well, each morning, all the students. And one morning, this one young married man didn't come. And he had a little daughter. And then as the class ended, he was waiting outside. And he said, well, Mr. Meredith, I'm sorry I wasn't here today. My little daughter is dying. I said, dying? What's wrong? He said she has spinal meningitis. And the doctors say they actually, they'd known about it. For a week or two, they'd sent her blood to this lab. It was the fatal variety. And she was shaking and convulsing and had a very high fever and was dying. It's the fatal variety. It was about 99% fatal, whatever. And she'd been anointed by one of the elders. Just They thought she just had a cold and fever, but it got worse and worse. He said, would you come out? I said, yeah, I sure will. So I stepped to the phone or asked someone to call my secretary, tell him cancel stuff or whatever I had. And I went out right then with him. And the mother was crying, and the little girl was still kind of like this and so on. And I prayed for her with all my heart, because I had a little daughter at that time, who was a little older. (coughs) Named Elizabeth. (laughs) So I had mercy on this little girl, (laughs) and I prayed my heart out for her. And... A day or two later, I said, let me know. And they called and said, she's healed. They said, after you left, she quit convulsing. She went to sleep and slept for 12 hours or something, just a long time. And then she woke up, no fever, and she was hungry. (laughs) And so they gave her something to eat. And then I saw her at church two or three, four days later, and I said, why did you, you know, they said, she's really healed. I thought, that's right. Why should I doubt what God did? I was almost thought they brought her to church too soon. But they didn't. She was healed. So God does do these things. God is our healer. God is very real. We need to put our faith and trust in God. God's ways work. God's way of life works. God's promises are real. Christ is coming back for real to this earth. In our lifetimes, most of you. He doesn't promise he'll come in my lifetime. So we're not trying to commit God to a timetable. But I've planned to be there when he comes, either in the resurrection or uh, 
or when he comes, and that's up to God. Turn back to Daniel chapter 12, brethren. Turn back to Daniel chapter 12. I'm sorry for my little outbreak here, which I, I don't normally do. Daniel chapter 12, and let's begin in verse... Well, chapter 11, verse 40, gives the time setting here. He says, And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack this king of the north, and the king of the north will then come back down and a counterattack and really swarm over him. It's coming beast power. It's the time of the end. Then it goes on and tells about it. And verse 12, or chapter 12, remember, it's the scroll of Daniel. These things keep right on going. At that time, the time of the end, he's talking about Michael, shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as was not since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Your people will be delivered. God will deliver America and Britain. We will not be utterly, completely crushed. We will come back and God will bring back our people weeping and repenting, as it says in Jeremiah 31. Everyone, and of course he's talking here apparently also about the spiritual deliverance, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So it's the time of the end, the time of the resurrection from the dead some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, do you understand? Do you want to be part of this work of the great God at the end of this age? Do you want to be part of the most exciting thing going on on the face of the earth? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness have a part in their conversion and bringing them into the first resurrection, the better resurrection. Those who turn many to righteousness, they shall shine, as it's certainly indicating, like the stars forever and ever. That's our opportunity. That's our calling. We need faith and courage. We need to think big. God wants us to do a big work, but we're going to have to have big faith and trust in God to do that work because we won't be doing it. God will be doing it with us and through us. That's where faith comes in.